Book Eight, Part Four of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christina Vasilevsky. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso. Translated by Brooks Moore. Book Eight, Part Four. And at this point, the river said no more. This wonderful event astonished all. But one was there, Ixion's haughty son, a known despiser of the living gods, who, laughing, scorned it as an idle tale. He made a jest of those who heard, and said, A foolish fiction! Achilles, how can such a tale be true? Do you believe a god there is, in heaven so powerful, a god to give and take away a form, transform created shapes? Such impious words found no response in those who heard him speak. Amazed he could so doubt known truth, before them all uprose to vindicate the gods, the hero Lelex, wise in length of days. The glory of the living gods, he said, is not diminished, nor their power confined, and whatsoever they decree is done. And I have this to tell, for all must know the evil of such words. Upon the hills of Phrygia I have seen two sacred trees, a lime-tree and an oak, so closely grown their branches interlace. A low stone wall is built around to guard them from all harm. And that you may not doubt it, I declare again, I saw the spot for Pythias there had sent me to attend his father's court. Near by those trees are stagnant pools and fens, where coots and cormorants delight to haunt, but it was not so always. Long ago t'was visited by mighty Jupiter, together with his nimble-witted son, who first had laid aside his rod and wings. As weary travellers over all the land they wandered, begging for their food and bed, and of a thousand houses, all the doors were bolted, and no word of kindness given. So wicked were the people of that land. At last, by chance, they stopped at a small house, whose humble roof was thatched with reeds and straw. And here a kind old couple greeted them. The good dame, Bacchus, seemed about the age of old Philemon, her devoted man. They had been married in their early youth, in that same cottage, and had lived in it, and grown together to a good old age, contented with their lot, because they knew their poverty, and felt no shame of it. They had no need of servants. The good pair were masters of their home, and served themselves. Their own commands they easily obeyed. Now, when the two gods, Jove and Mercury, had reached this cottage, and with bending necks had entered the low door, the old man bade them rest their wearied limbs, and set a bench on which his good wife, Bacchus, threw a cloth, and then with kindly bustle she stirred up the glowing embers on the hearth, and then laid tinder, leaves, and bark, and bending down, breathed on them with her ancient breath till they kindled into flame. Then from the house she brought a store of faggots and small twigs and broken branches, and above them swung a kettle, not too large for simple folk, and all this done, she stripped some cabbage leaves, which her good husband gathered for the meal. Then, with a two-pronged fork, the man let down a rusty side of bacon from aloft, and cut a little portion from the chine, which had been cherished long. He softened it in boiling water. 
all the while they tried with cheerful conversation to beguile, so none might notice a brief loss of time. Swung on a peg, they had a beechwood trough, which quickly with warm water filled was used for comfortable washing. And they fixed upon a willow couch a cushion soft with springy sedge, on which they neatly spread a well-worn cloth preserved so many years. "'Twas only used on rare and festive days, and even it was coarse and very old, though not unfit to match a willow couch. Now, as the gods reclined, the good old dame, whose skirts were tucked up, moving carefully, for so she tottered with her many years, fetched a clean table for the ready meal. But one leg of the table was too short, and so she wedged it with a potsherd. So made firm, she cleanly scoured it with fresh mint, and here is set the double-tinted fruit of chaste Minerva, and the tasty dish of corner, autumn-picked and pickled. These were served for relish, and the ondive green, and radishes surrounding a large pot of curdled milk, and eggs not overdone, but gently turned in glowing embers, all served up in earthen dishes. Then sweet wine served up in clay, so costly, all embossed, and cups of beechwood smoothed with yellow wax. So now they had short respite, till the fire might yield the heated course. Again they served new wine, but mellow, and a second course, sweet nuts, dried figs, and wrinkled dates and plums, and apples fragrant, in wide baskets heaped, and, in a wreath of grapes from purple vines, concealed almost a glistening honeycomb and all these orchard dainties were enhanced by willing service and congenial smiles. But while they served, the wine-bowl often drained, as often was replenished, though unfilled, and Bacchus and Philemon, full of fear, as they observed the wine's spontaneous will, increasing when it should diminish, raised their hands in supplication, and implored indulgence for their simple home and fare. And now, persuaded by this strange event, such visitors were deities unknown this aged couple anxious to bestow their most esteemed possession hastily began to chase the only goose they had the faithful guardian of their little home which they would kill and offer to the gods but swift of wing at last it wearied them and fled for refuge to the smiling gods at once the deities forbade their zeal and said a righteous punishment shall fall severe upon this wicked neighbourhood but by the might of our divinity no evil shall befall this humble home B but you must come and follow as we climb the summit of this mountain both obeyed and leaning on their staves toiled up the steep not farther from the summit than the flight of one swift arrow from a hunter's bow they paused to view their little home once more and as they turned their eyes they saw the fields around their own engulfed in a morass although their own remained and while they wept bewailing the sad fate of many friends and wondered at the change they saw their home so old and little from their simple need put on new splendour and as it increased it changed into a temple of the gods where first the frame was fashioned of rude stakes columns of marble glistened and the thatch gleamed golden in the sun and legends carved adorned the doors and all the ground shone white with marble rich and after this was done the son of saturn said with gentle voice now tell us good old man and you his wife worthy and faithful what is your desire philemon counselled with old bacchus first and then discovered to the listening gods their heart's desire 
we pray you let us have the care of your new temple and since we have passed so many years in harmony let us depart this life together let the same hour take us both i would not see the tomb of my dear wife and let me not be so destined to be buried by her hands at once their wishes were fulfilled so long as life was granted they were known to be the temple's trusted keepers and when age had enervated them with many years as they were standing by some chance before the sacred steps and were relating all these things as they had happened bacchus saw philemon her old husband and he too saw bacchus as their bodies put forth leaves and while the tops of trees grew over them above their faces they spoke each to each as long as they could speak they said farewell farewell my own and while they said farewell new leaves and branches covered both at once the people of tyana still point out two trees which grew there from a double trunk two forms made into one old truthful men who have no reason to deceive me told me truly all that i have told you and i have seen the votive wreaths hung from the branches of the hallowed double tree and one time as i hung fresh garlands there i said those whom the gods care for are gods and those who worshipped are now worshipped here he ceased and this miraculous event and he who told it had astonished them but theseus above all the hero asked to hear of other wonders wrought by gods the caledonian river god replied and leaning on one elbow said to him there are o valiant hero other things whose forms once changed as these have so remained but there are some who take on many shapes as you have proteus dweller of the deep the deep whose arms embrace the earth for some have seen you as a youth then as a lion a furious boar one time a serpent next so dreadful to the touch and sometimes horns have made you seem a bull or now a stone or now a tree or now a slipping stream or even the foe of water next to fire now erisichthion's daughter mestra had that power of proteus she was called the wife of the deft autolycus her father spurned the majesty of all the gods and gave no honor to their altars it is said he violated with an impious axe the sacred grove of ceres and he cut her trees with iron long standing in her grove there grew an ancient oak tree spread so wide alone it seemed a standing forest and its trunk and branches held memorials as fillets tablets garlands witnessing how many prayers the goddess ceres had granted and underneath it laughing dryads loved to whirl in festal dances hand in hand encircling its enormous trunk that thrice five ells might measure and to such a height it towered over all the trees around as they were higher than the grass beneath but erisichthion heedless of all things ordered his slaves to fell the sacred oak and as they hesitated in a rage the wretch snatched from the hand of one an axe and said if this should be the only oak loved by the goddess of this very grove or even where the goddess in this tree i'll level to the ground its leafy head so boasted he and while he swung on high his axe to strike a slanting blow the oak beloved of ceres uttered a deep groan and shuddered instantly its dark green leaves turned pale and all its acorns lost their green and even its long branches drooped their arms 
But when his impious hand had struck the trunk and cut its bark, red blood poured from the wound. As when a weighty sacrificial bull has fallen at the altar, streaming blood sprouts from its stricken neck. All were amazed. And one of his attendants boldly tried to stay his cruel axe, and hindered him. But Erisichthion, fixing his stern eyes upon him, said, Let this, then, be the price of all your pious worship. So he turned the poised axe from the tree, and clove his head sheer from his body, and began to chop the hard oak. From the heart of it these words were uttered, Covered by the bark of this oak tree, I long have dwelt a nymph, beloved of Ceres, and before my death it has been granted to me to prophecy that I may die contented. Punishment for this vile deed stands waiting at your side. No warning could avert his wicked arm. Much weakened by his countless blows, the tree, pulled down by straining ropes, gave way at last and leveled with its weight uncounted trees that grew around it. Terrified and shocked, the sister dryads, grieving for the grove and what they lost, put on their sable robes and hastened unto Ceres, whom they prayed might rightly punish Erisichthion's crime. The lovely goddess granted their request, and by the gracious movement of her head she shook the fruitful cultivated fields, then heavy with the harvest, and she planned an unexampled punishment deserved, and not beyond his miserable crimes, the grisly bane of famine. But because it is not in the scope of destiny that two such deities should ever meet as Ceres and gaunt famine, calling forth her mountain-wild a rustic oread, the goddess Ceres said to her, There is an ice-bound wilderness of barren soil in utmost Scythia, desolate and bare of trees and corn, where torpid frost, white death and palsy and gaunt famine hold their haunts. Go there now, and command that famine flit from there and let her gnawing essence pierce the entrails of the sacrilegious wretch, and there be hidden. Let her vanquish me, and overcome the utmost power of food. Heed not misgivings of the journey's length, for you will guide my dragon-bridled car through lofty ether. And she gave to her the reins, and so the swiftly-carried nymph arrived in Scythia. There, upon the toll of steepy Caucasus, when she had slipped their tight yoke from the dragon's harnessed necks, she searched for famine in that granite land, and there she found her clutching at scant herbs with nails and teeth. Beneath her shaggy hair her hollow eyes glared in her ghastly face. Her lips were filthy, and her throat was rough and blotched, and all her entrails could be seen and clothed in nothing but her shriveled skin. Her crooked loins were dry, uncovered bones, and where her belly should be was a void. Her flabby breast was flat against her spine. Her lean, emaciated body made her joints appear so large, her hobbled knees seemed large knots, and her swollen ankle bones protruded. When the nymph, with keen sight, saw the famine monster, fearing to draw near, she cried aloud the mandate she had brought from fruitful Ceres, and although the time had been but brief and famine far away, such hunger seized the nymph. She had to turn her dragon-steeds and flee through yielding air on the high clouds. At Thessaly she stopped. Grim famine hastened to obey the will of Ceres, though their deeds are opposite, and rapidly through ether heights was borne to Erisichthion's home. When she arrived at midnight, slumber was upon the wretch, 
and that she folded him in her two wings, she breathed her pestilential poison through his mouth and throat and breast, and spread the curse of utmost hunger in his aching veins. When all was done as Ceres had decreed, she left the fertile world for bleak abodes and her accustomed caves. While this was done, sweet sleep with charming pinions soothed the mind of Erisichthion. In a dreamful feast he worked his jaws in vain, and ground his teeth, and swallowed air as his imagined food, till wearied with the effort he awoke to hunger scorching as a fire, which burned his entrails and compelled his raging jaws. So he, demanding all the foods of sea and earth and air, raged of his hunger. While the tables groaned with heaps before him spread, he, banqueting, sought banquets for more food, and as he gorged he always wanted more. The food of cities and a nation failed to satisfy the cravings of one man. The more his stomach gets, the more it needs, even as the ocean takes the streams of earth, although it swallows up great rivers drawn from lands remote, it never can be filled nor satisfied. And as devouring fire its fuel refuses never, but consumes unnumbered beams of wood, and burns for more the more tis fed, and from abundance gains increasing famine. So the raving jaws of wretched Erisichthion, ever craved all food in him, was only cause of food, and what he ate made only room for more. And after famine, through his gluttony at last had wasted his ancestral wealth, his raging hunger suffered no decline, and his insatiate gluttony increased. When all his wealth at last was eaten up, his daughter, worthy of a fate more kind, alone was left to him and her he sold. Descendant of a noble race, the girl, refusing to be purchased as a slave, then hastened to the near shore of the sea, and as she stretched her arms above the waves, implored kind Neptune with her tears. Oh, you who have deprived me of virginity, deliver me from such a master's power! Although the master seeking her had seen her only at that moment, Neptune changed her quickly from a woman to a man, by giving her the features of a man and garments proper to a fisherman, and there she stood. He even looked at her and cried out, Hey there, expert of the rod! While you are casting forth the bit of brass concealed so deftly in its tiny bait, God's willing, let the sea be smooth for you, and let the foolish fishes swimming up never know the danger till they snap the hook. Now tell me, where is she, who only now, in tattered garment and wind-twisted hair, was standing on this shore? For I am sure I saw her standing on this shore, although no footstep shows her flight. By this, assured the favor of the god protected her, delighted to be questioned of herself, she said, No matter who you are, excuse me. So busy have I been at catching fish, I have not had the time to move my eyes from this pool. And that you may be assured I only tell the truth, may Neptune, god of ocean, witness it. I have not seen a man here where I am standing on this shore, myself excepted. Not a woman has stood here. Her master could not doubt it and deceived, retraced his footsteps from the sandy shore. As soon as he had disappeared, her form unchanged was given back to her. But when her father knew his daughter could transform her body and escape, he often sold her first to one and then another, all of whom she cheated. As a mare, a bird, a cow, or as a stag she got away, and so brought food dishonestly to ease his greed. And so he lived until the growing strength of famine, gnawing at his vitals, had consumed all he could get by selling her. 
His anguish burned him with increasing heat. He gnawed his own flesh, and tore his limbs and fed his body all he took from it. Ugh! Why should I dwell on the wondrous deeds of others? Even I, O oh gathered youth, have such a power. I can often change my body till my limit has been reached. A while appearing in my real form, another moment coiled up as a snake, then as a monarch of the herd, my strength increases in my horns. My strength increased in my two horns when I had two, but now my forehead, as you see, has lost one horn. And having ended with such words, he groaned. End of Book 8, Part 4 Recording by Christina Vasilevsky of www.105creations.com